This podcast is designed for the purpose of entertainment and information and is not meant to be considered medical advice. What? It's not? No. Are you sure? Yeah, our lawyer said we can't do that anymore. Aww. So, um, I don't think this is a healthy way for you to deal with the stress of a pandemic. Eh. I mean, you, you can't find salvation at the bottom of a bottle. Well, not if you stop looking, no. Does the drinking make you feel better? No, but as the old saying goes, if at first you don't succeed, try at least three more times to make sure your results are statistically significant. I see. I mean, I appreciate the benefits of replication, but... Sounds um... good! You want one? No, no, I, I'm not keen on, on drinking myself. Hmm, pity. Mm. 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 Ah, makes all your problems seem temporarily less important. I worry about your liver a little bit. Yeah, it'll be okay. The liver's a resilient organ. He can take it. Okay, well, maybe just put the glass down and we can get back to the show. Maybe I'll just take a quick nap first, okay? <sighs> well, maybe... Maybe if we could just, uh, and he's out. Oh, well. He deserves a rest. Uh, let me just turn you over on your side so you don't choke on your own vomit. And I'll just hold on to the money in your wallet for safekeeping. Uh, wow, so many $100 bills. Had no idea they looked like that. And there we go. It's a show about medicine. Sanitized for your safety. The guy you just heard is Dr. Christopher Labos. And the other guy is Jonathan Jarry. I'm a doctor, but he's not. Sorry that I did biomedical research instead, jeez. And we're gonna look at the evidence behind medical topics, and the show is Wait, called... wait, wait, no, I, I wanna say it, I wanna say it. I wanna... No, no, I wanna say it. I'm I wanna say it, I wanna say it. I came up with it. It's the body of... Body of evidence. It's the body of evidence. You totally stole that from Madonna. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome to another edition of The Body of Evidence, the show that tries to help you deal with all of your pandemic-related stressors. Right, Chris? Huh? What? Oh, is it noon already? Way past that, actually. Hmm. Let me get you some uh, coffee to pretend like it's sobering you up. So anyway, that voice you just heard is out of my co-host, Dr. Christopher Labos, cardiologist, epidemiologist, and man who is clearly working himself into an early grave. Listen, my public needs me. Nope, fame is fleeting and ultimately inconsequential. Just ask Jim Carrey. And that voice you just heard is that of Jonathan Jerry, podcaster, science communicator, and man whose moral code intersects with that of the Quakers more often than he would like to admit. That degree of self-awareness is unproductive. Uh, now, in all seriousness, we know that many people are feeling stress and anxiety because of the pandemic, and if you are struggling, please do not resort to increasing your alcohol consumption. That is not a long-term solution. Please reach out to someone. There are a number of crisis helplines in every province and state wherever you happen to live. That's right. The most important thing is not to suffer in silence. Help is available. The thing to remember is that you are not alone. Now, today we are going to be talking about liver disease, partly because we are systematically working our way through all of the body's organs. The spleen is next. 
maybe not. But uh, yeah, we, we are trying to cover different topics in medicine, but also there have been reports in the news about people increasing their alcohol consumption during the pandemic. And that led inevitably to a discussion about the liver. And here we are. Indeed, delivering uh, our uh, episode on the liver. So the liver is a fascinating topic because very often some unscrupulous people uh, who are trying to sell you something will claim that it detoxifies the liver. It does not. Okay, and we'll, we will get to that. Uh, but first, I think it would be helpful to discuss what the liver actually does. Because quite frankly, its exact purpose in the human body is somewhat nebulous, at least to most members of the general public. And that's probably because the liver does so many different things. So your liver, which is seated in your abdomen on the right side of the body, just under your rib cage, um, it does a lot of different stuff. First, you know, it produces bile that is necessary for the process of digestion. It also stores iron that you need for your red blood cells. It converts glucose into glycogen, so basically storing energy for later use. And it breaks down and metabolizes different medications. Uh, it also makes a bunch of different proteins, like the ones used for, for blood clotting. It also synthesizes cholesterol. And... Oh, okay, okay. So a, a lot of different functions. Exactly. And what if your liver gets damaged beyond repair? Well, then you die. Uh, you can live without a spleen. You can cut away most of your stomach and intestines and be fine. You can lose one kidney. And you can lose one lung and be relatively okay, but no liver and you die. It's in the name. You can't live without a liver. And dying of liver failure is possibly one of the most painful and unpleasant ways to go. More or less painful than being eaten alive by a hungry tiger? Uh, roughly equivalent, I would say. Jeez, I, I was joking, but okay. So, so, so there's no form of dialysis for liver failure like they do with kidneys? Well, uh, they do exist, uh, but they have not proven to be terribly successful. They might be used in specific situations, uh, but basically there is no liver equivalent to the dialysis machine we use for patients with kidney failure. Is that because the liver does so many different things that it would be hard to make a machine that responded to all of those needs? Pretty much, pretty much. I mean, so basically if your liver fails, you need a transplant. But the liver could, in some circumstances, recover on its own. Yes, I mean, that does happen, absolutely. It, it depends, obviously, on what the cause was and how severe the damage is. But yes, the liver can recover. It, it actually has a remarkable capacity to regenerate. So, so that's not a myth? No, no, that's very real. If you cut out a part of your liver, it would regrow. And, and this happens in liver transplant cases. They find a donor and they remove part of the donor's liver and transplant it into the recipient. And then after three to six months, both donor and recipient will have an increase in liver mass. That's quite remarkable if you think about it, because I mean, most organs don't behave in that way. Like if I removed your kidney, it would not grow back. No, no. Now, we should be clear. We are talking about removing just a portion of the liver. If you remove just a section, the remaining portion of the liver will increase in size over the course of a few months. It maybe won't return to normal size, but it will increase. But even the transplant recipient will see their liver mass increase. Yes, that's true. So in short, your liver can regenerate. So you could be a living liver donor and donate part of your liver to someone in need and basically be okay afterwards with only a scar along your abdomen for your trouble. So if I needed a liver transplant, you could donate part of your liver to me to, to save my life. So, I mean, in theory, yes, but... Uh... So you're saying you wouldn't donate part of your liver to me? 
well, I would have to go to the hospital and stay overnight. And then the parking is just so expensive at the hospital. Wow. Sobering. I can fix that. No, that's not what I... That's okay. More for me then. Anyway, so there you have it. Uh, You can, believe it or not, regrow part of your liver. But do you need to detox your liver? No! Hopefully a less belligerent and more detailed answer will be coming up. That's after the break. This episode of The Body of Evidence is brought to you in part by a new YouTube channel. Do you find skepticism too confrontational? Do you think skeptics of alternative medicine sound too arrogant and abrasive? And does ASMR give you tingles? With over 20 million views in its first three days on YouTube, the channel ASMR Skeptical Boyfriend is bound to inject some critical thinking into your nighttime routine. Inspired by the viral success of ASMR channels in which 15-year-old high schoolers roleplay as your boyfriend in creepy whispers, ASMR Skeptical Boyfriend takes this trend and runs with it in a bid to win the next prize from the James Randy Educational Foundation. Hey, getting ready for bed? Yeah, me too. There's been something on my mind these past few days, and, well, I'm just gonna say it. I love you. What I don't love is this bottle of essential oils on your nightstand. Yeah, this bottle. say you take it for your asthma, but as your boyfriend, I have to tell you that there's zero evidence that it works. Same thing for that bottle of homeopathic oscillococcin you took last week for your sniffles. Yeah, this bottle. Did you know that they're just sugar pills? I'll send you a meta-analysis of homeopathy was published three years ago, and you'll see that I'm right. I love you. Remember, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Mission accomplished. ASMR's Skeptical Boyfriend delivers sweet dreams filled with artificial intimacy and systematic reviews of the evidence. Don't forget to like and subscribe and hit that bell gently. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome back to The Body of Evidence. Today, we are discussing the liver. And before the break, Chris was going to pick a fight with a bouncer thanks to his truly heroic consumption of liquid courage. It gives me the self-confidence I lack in everyday life. Okay, we, we need to have a talk after the show. <gasps> Puppy-related? Uh, sure. So anyway, before the break, we had hinted at detoxing the liver. Not a thing. Sure. Now, the usual comeback to that is... I know you are, but what am I? No, the usual comeback to that is that the liver does not need detoxifying because it detoxifies your body. Uh Uh-huh. Is that a valid representation of that state of affairs? 
I mean, as a shorthand, sure. I, you know, close enough. Uh, but the reality is a bit more complex. So the liver doesn't detoxify your body? Well, no, it doesn't detoxify your body in the same way that the kidney doesn't filter your blood. Uh, the kidney, as we've discussed in past episodes, actually excretes molecules via a complex array of channel proteins. It has a filtering function in a way, but it's more than just a sieve. Okay, so, so what is the liver doing exactly? Well, part of the liver's job is to metabolize certain molecules, take alcohol. The liver has an enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase, which is one of the enzymes needed to break down alcohol. So if you think of alcohol as a toxic substance, uh, liver enzymes are breaking it down into smaller parts so you can metabolize it as a sugar and then store any excess amount and therefore slowly gain weight. One of the many reasons I don't drink. And uh, look, the other thing is that the liver makes something called bile acids, which can attach themselves to other molecules. Uh, and when that happens, these molecular complexes get eliminated through bile ducts into the intestine and then come out in your poop. So I appreciate that the mechanisms involved here are more complex, but in a, in a general sense, the liver is responsible for breaking down and getting rid of certain molecules. Right, but I guess the point I was trying to make is that it's not deterministic. The liver doesn't know it's doing a good job or only going after bad molecules. It metabolizes all kinds of things, even medications. Like the medications you prescribe patients. Right, so if you ever wondered why some medications can be taken as pills and some need to be given as injections, well, the liver is partly responsible for that. When you swallow a pill, it gets absorbed in the small intestine and enters the bloodstream uh, in the portal vein, which drains into the liver. I see, and it metabolizes the drugs. Right, and since medication will always pass through the liver first before going into the general circulation, this first-pass metabolism is one thing that determines whether medications can be given orally or not. So then these detox cleanses won't do anything for your liver? No, because the liver isn't like the filter in your air conditioning unit. It doesn't need to be cleaned. Uh, the liver is just producing enzymes that break down or cut up other molecules. It continues to function whether those target molecules are there or not. Unless the molecules are themselves directly damaging to the liver. Sure, fair enough, fair enough. So just to play devil's advocate, couldn't a detox regimen then help limit liver damage? Well, no, because the thing that is most likely to damage your liver is alcohol. But what about viruses like hepatitis A, B, or C? Uh, yeah, th that's true. That's true. I meant like toxins, quote unquote toxins that you are like eating and drinking. Okay. So, so anyway, the reason why a detox cleanse isn't going to help your liver is that your liver breaks down alcohol. So there is no alcohol molecule left afterwards. Because your liver, or, or more accurately, the, the enzymes that it produces, metabolize alcohol into simple sugars that you then use for energy. Right. So does the alcohol damage the liver cells directly? And, and does that repetitive damage add up over time? Uh, not exactly. It's, uh, I'm sorry to say, more complex than that. Alcohol, when it's broken down, uh, increases the amount of a molecule called NADH. And through a series of downstream effects, the liver basically starts making more triglycerides that accumulate in the liver. And uh, triglycerides is the main kind of, of fat uh, found in humans. 
And this condition that you describe of the liver making this kind of fat, that's what is called fatty liver. Right. So fatty liver is the first stage in a progression towards worse and ultimately permanent liver disease. It goes from fatty liver to hepatitis, meaning inflammation of the liver, and ultimately to cirrhosis, which is a late stage scarring of the liver. You mentioned that this is caused by alcohol consumption, but isn't there a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? There is, there is, uh, and it's usually seen in people with diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, or the metabolic syndrome. Basically, fatty liver disease caused not by alcohol, but by something else. Exactly. And the treatment depends on the cause, right? If it's alcoholic, stop drinking alcohol. If it's not, then lifestyle changes and weight loss. Exactly. Although rapid weight loss can actually make it worse. Um, so really just eating healthy and exercising and general lifestyle changes and your fatty liver can get better. But over time, if you don't do that, your fatty liver can progress to hepatitis and then ultimately to cirrhosis and liver failure. Right. And as we said, that might require a transplant if it gets to end-stage liver disease. True, but the point is to prevent it from getting that bad. And if you stop drinking alcohol, you at least stop the process from getting worse. Uh, and if you stop early enough, the liver can recover. And if you get cirrhosis, you know, with treatment, uh, you can at least minimize some of the complications. What are the treatments for cirrhosis? Well, not for cirrhosis per se, but for treating the complications of cirrhosis. So like people with cirrhosis can get portal hypertension. Um, that's when the pressure in the liver goes up and then that backs up into the vein that feeds into the liver. Um, treatment with medications uh, called beta blockers can, can help with that. Uh, and also, uh, treatments to lower uh, nitrogen levels in the blood can help because what happens with liver failure is you get nitrogen buildup in the blood, uh, and that can cause confusion and, and mental status changes in people. So you can at least treat that bit. But nothing reverses the cirrhosis itself. No, no. Okay. Putting aside alcohol, uh, if the cirrhosis is caused by a virus, then there are treatments, right? Well, depends on the virus. Okay, so there are, there are three hepatitis virus, if, if memory serves. Hepatitis A, B, and C, correct? Uh, actually, there are five, and, and possibly many more, um, but we rarely talk about hepatitis D and hepatitis E. Hepatitis D uh, is actually sometimes called a defective virus because it requires co-infection with hepatitis B to infect humans, so it doesn't occur on its own. And hepatitis E infections uh, do happen, but rarely in North America. In other parts of the world, yes, but rarely here. So that's why you normally just hear about hepatitis A, B, and C. Right. Uh, hepatitis A usually causes an acute infection, um, so it infects you, and then your body clears the infection, and, and usually no harm done. So hepatitis A infections are, are actually pretty common. But there is a vaccine against it now. Yes, but in the not-too-distant past, hepatitis A was essentially endemic, meaning that everybody got infected, a small percentage got sick, but most not. Okay, hepatitis A, acute infection, gone, no harm done, but hepatitis B is worse. Yes, hepatitis B can become a chronic infection. Meaning that your immune system is never capable of eliminating it entirely. 
Right, and so that chronic infection keeps damaging your liver and leads to hepatitis and then to cirrhosis. So how do you catch these infections? I mean, is it from licking toilet seats? Uh, possibly. Well, you, you sh well, I don't know why you would ever actually try that. Uh, hep hepatitis A is usually oral contamination, so contaminated food and water usually. Hepatitis B uh, can be transmitted sexually or through blood, so, so sharing needles and stuff like that. Now, this is a common question that comes up when people want to find reasons to question vaccines, and that, that is, why do we vaccinate babies against hepatitis B if it's a sexually transmitted infection? Right, so here's the thing. Hepatitis B is not just spread by sex and used needles. In the before times, before vaccines, a lot of children used to get hepatitis B. And presumably they were not promiscuous drug users. No, a, a lot of these cases were from vertical transmission, spread from pregnant mothers to the baby. Um, a lot too was household transmission. So a parent gets hepatitis B and then spreads it to the rest of the family via contaminated household products. Like toothbrushes, towels, razors, combs, bedding, utensils. Yeah, like all that stuff. Absolutely. And preventing hep B infection prevents future liver disease. Yes, because paradoxically, the younger you get hepatitis, the more likely it is to become a chronic infection and not be cleared by your immune system. Th that is paradoxical, isn't it? I mean, usually infections in childhood are less severe and they're worse when you're an adult. Yeah, I mean, what can I tell you? The world is a messed up place. No, put, put it down. We're almost done. Just, just, just power through the last minute. Okay. Okay, so hepatitis A, usually an acute infection that resolves. Hepatitis B can often become a chronic infection that leads to liver disease. And so based on how this is evolving, I'm guessing hepatitis C is the worst of the three, like apocalypatitis C. Yeah, it, it's, it's basically almost always a chronic infection that does the thing where it progresses from hepatitis to cirrhosis to liver failure. Okay, so there are vaccines against hepatitis A and hepatitis B, but no vaccines against hepatitis C. Why not? I don't know. Why are there no flying cars? No one can make one that works. Uh, look, I, I guess in, in, though in, in broader terms, the nature of hepatitis C is different. People with hepatitis C do have antibodies against hepatitis C. It's just that the immune response can't clear the virus. That doesn't sound good. No, and when I trained as a resident, uh, hepatitis C was basically incurable. If you were unlucky enough to get hepatitis C, either because of a contaminated blood transfusion or IV drug use or whatever, uh, then there was basically no cure. There were some treatments like interferon therapy, but they had a lot of side effects and were very hard to tolerate. And the basic shorthand was that hepatitis C was essentially incurable. That's depressing. Uh, it was. Uh, but then something great happened. People developed new antivirals, what they call DAAs, direct acting antivirals. And kind of like with HIV, there are multiple classes of antiviral agents like protease inhibitors, nucleotide polymerase inhibitors, and non-nucleoside polymerase inhibitors. And they block specific proteins necessary for viral replication. Damn you, big pharma. Oh, no, wait. This is something good that they did, curing an incurable disease and all that. 
Yeah, so, so basically you use different types of DAAs together to prevent the virus from becoming resistant. This sounds very similar to HIV treatment, where they use a drug cocktail. Uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of parallels. So how do you decide which cocktail to use? Mai Tai, Apple Martini, Ginger Mule? So it depends on a few things, mainly whether the patient has cirrhosis or not. Uh, and the genotype of the virus. So the changes in its genes that tell you what, what category it's in. Uh, you have to genotype the virus first to decide which medications to start. I see. And are there downsides to these hepatitis C medications? Well, one of the big issues early on was that in people who were infected with both hepatitis B and hepatitis C, treating the hepatitis C alone could reactivate a dormant hepatitis B infection. Okay, that's obviously suboptimal. Um, anything else? Well, uh, they are incredibly expensive, these drugs. Damn you, Big Pharma, maybe? Yeah, no, no, that's appropriate here. You go ahead. Damn you, Big Pharma, for trying to recoup your R&D investment, but also for spending so much money on advertising and ridiculous salaries for your upper management staff. Yeah, I mean, I, look, there's not an easy answer here. These drugs are very expensive, and you want to find a way to make sure drugs are not unattainable. Um, to further the HIV analogy, like with HIV, we have great drugs that essentially cure or at least cause complete viral suppression of a previously incurable disease. That is a triumph of science. Go science. Uh, but they are expensive and prohibitively expensive for many people around the world. Boo, the imperfect world we live in. I say boo to you, sir. Uh, the point is liver disease, which is a common and frankly terrible disease to have, is very preventable. Yeah, you basically just need to get your vaccines, not drink too much, and not be a careless intravenous drug user. And, uh, of course, no matter what the unscrupulous people say on the internet, you don't need to detox your liver. That is not a thing. So liver detox is useless. What's best is to drink less. Liver detox is useless. What's best is to drink less. Liver detox is useless. What's best is to drink less. Liver detox is useless. Ooh, what's best is to drink less. Ooh, alcohol. After the break, a listener's dark confession. He sometimes beats his wife, but he's sleeping when it happens. We talk about REM behavior disorder after the break. This episode of The Body of Evidence is brought to you in part by an all-new prestige podcasting miniseries from Audio Nibbles. Meet Jeremy Pillmonger IV, the 55-year-old man who claims he still hasn't been born. This is the uh, sensory deprivation tank in which I spend about 20 hours a day. Uh, I mostly meditate while being injected with embalming fluid. I also listen to the sound of endangered species of whales because a 1999 article in the Mongolian Journal of Meditation and Craniotomy showed that, without a doubt, uh, it had the power to rejuvenate people. And by people, I mean three mice based on their blood profile. Even though Jeremy is technically 55 years old, his revolutionary regimen is keeping him young and stunning scientists. Jeremy is a feat of nature. Uh, we, we have much to learn from him. 
by using the millions of dollars he has made betting on the price of insulin on the stock market, he has made the brilliant decision to pay teenagers to have their blood drawn and have it injected straight into his heart. That's how he remains young. I mean, Jeremy's a genius, and I'm just lucky to be both the scientist who hooks him up on the blood of these teenagers and the guy who was his best friend growing up. Jeremy, whose telomere length is alleged to be that of a three-month-old fetus, says his dietary regimen is accessible to any who are smart enough to take advantage of its life-saving potential. <laughs> I eat pizza like, like everyone else. I, I'm human. But I eat pizza once every three years on a blood moon. The rest of the time, I hire a truck to dump half a ton of supplements into my open maw three times a day. I just don't trust the food industry, you know? Some people say I have the body of a 12-year-old. I can neither confirm nor deny this claim. What I can say is that the cops will never find it. Get all six episodes of The Fetus Man on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Shoppers Drug Mart's PA System, the Geico Insurance All-Star Music Player, and the Audio Nibbles app. Welcome back to The Body of Evidence. Uh, we received a message from a listener who says he has all the symptoms of what he calls REM sleep behavior disorder. He punches, he kicks, he sits up in bed, he jumps out of bed. Uh, his poor wife has been hit multiple times. Now she has poor sleep as well. He's been referred to a sleep specialist. Now, first off, our podcast cannot diagnose or treat any condition, but we will use this uh, inquiry as a jumping board into this disorder. What What is it? Um, so to answer this question, Jonathan, I will first ask you a question. Oh boy. What do you dream about? I rarely, I've, I've, I rarely remember uh, having any dreams uh, mm -hmm. or, or the content of my dreams. So uh, okay. not much. Yeah. So you don't well, usually, dream... usually the, the, yeah. mo the most frequent thing is that I am simultaneously in two places at once mm -hmm. and it makes perfect sense in the dream. And then I when see. I wake up, I go, that makes no sense. I could not I physically be in two places at once. Okay. Um... What does it mean, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Freud? Doctor, it means that you're a horrible human being and no one will ever <laughs> love you. Of course it does. Uh, it's also something Tell to do with sex for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, so here's the question. When you have these dreams, how come you don't react to them? Like how, why is it that you are not in bed sort of like thrashing around saying, oh no, don't kill me, Freddy Krueger. <laughs> like what, why do you not react to your dreams as everyone does in movies? Yeah, because as a protective mechanism, uh, your brain stops, quote unquote, feeding your muscles while you are in REM sleep, right? That's exactly correct. There is something called a sleep-induced atonia where exactly that happens. You are essentially paralyzed while you sleep so that you don't try to run away from the giant, you know, three-headed dog that's chasing you. Which, which uh, funny parenthesis, uh, the fact that you are paralyzed, like literally paralyzed mm -hmm. while you are in that state of sleep explains so many paranormal experiences of people who are abruptly waking up mm -hmm. and they think they can see things like they think maybe it's an alien or a demon or a ghost or something and they can't move. Yeah. Uh, and this is a well-known phenomenon and they, and they can't move and they feel like maybe they, they're, they've been abducted by aliens and they've been paralyzed. No, it's because of that, because you, you are in that sleep-induced atonia. Your muscles can't uh, react and, and it takes a little while as you wake up for your muscles to regain their, their tone. Yeah. 
So what this condition is, REM sleep behavior disorder, is basically a failure of that system. So what's happening is people are essentially uh, acting out their dreams. Mm -hmm. So they are thrashing around and kicking and punching and sitting up. And it's because they are reacting to the stuff that they are seeing in their dreams. And so you might say to yourself, well, given that this is not, you know, a nightmare on Elm Street, nothing that happens in your dreams can actually hurt you. But it but happens to your partner. It can hurt your partner, apparently. Well, and this is the problem. <laughs> but here's the thing. Yeah. I, it, so although we often talk about it in that way, I was reading up on some of the statistics for this before we started recording. And uh, the truth is, is that you're more likely to injure yourself than you are your partner. You can injure like, your like partner. Like falling off the bed? Yeah, falling off the bed. That's actually one of the biggest uh, sources of injury. People just fall off the bed and they hurt themselves. Yikes. Or they'll like thrash around and they'll like they'll like hit a lamp and like cut themselves or something. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you can get injured. Now, what's interesting is that the person themselves may not actually be aware that they're doing this unless they literally like see, find themselves on the floor in the morning and be like, hey, what happened? Mm -hmm. They might even think that they're sleepwalking. So they might think they're sleepwalking, but sleepwalking is actually a very different pathology. Hmm. A completely unrelated problem pathophysiologically. And one of the interesting things is that when you have these types of problems is to make the distinction between sleepwalking and uh, uh, REM sleep behavior disorder. The, the big one is, is that, you know, a sleepwalker is usually kind of hard to wake up from. Like it's hard to wake them up out of their sleepwalking uh, um, state. And they're usually like it takes them a while to come back to normal. But somebody with this condition, you wake them up, they just wake up and they're like, oh, what happened? Was I dreaming? Why am I on the floor? Why are all mm -hmm. my clothes off? Why is there blood everywhere? You know, so it's like <laughs> one of those things that happens. Right. Um, so it's an interesting distinction. And it's actually one of the things I talk about, like, no, this is not sleepwalking. This is something very, very different. This is people reacting to the fact that they are. Um, they are not paralyzed when they're in their REM state. And so they are overreacting to the stuff that they see in their dreams. And usually they can remember their dreams. That's the interesting thing too. I mean, not mm. always, but it, it is one of the defining characteristics. How common is this uh, phenomenon? So if I asked you to give me a population-based number, what would you, like what percent of the population has this condition? Oh, um, I would guess 1%. That, yeah, you're actually exactly right. It's 1%. Oh, wow. Okay. But it's often undiagnosed hmm. because if you sleep alone, you won't realize you're doing it. Unless you injure yourself. Unless you injure yourself. But even then, like if unless you like really injure yourself, if you just like wake up, like how many times have you seen a bruise and be like, hey, where did I get that from? Yeah, 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 true. And I think to myself, oh, I must have hit uh, some piece yeah. of furniture the previous day. Yeah. Yeah. So hmm. unless you uh, sleep with someone, you may not know it. Now, there's actually a huge male to female disparity in this. Like men are like in some studies, men are like nine times more likely to have the disorder than women. Wow. So the question becomes, is it genetic or is it just that because of the way our society is structured, are men more likely to have a sleeping partner that is going to realize that they're having this? And is it mm -hmm. that because women tend to outlive men? Because this is also age related, right? It becomes more common as, as we get older. Oh, interesting. Um, so is it that because women tend to live longer than men, is it more likely for there to be... Are, there, are women being undiagnosed because there are, you know, widowed or unmarried women who don't have a sleeping partner, whereas because men die first in the mm -hmm. marriage, they always have a partner who's going to diagnose it. So 
Lots of potential confounders uh, yeah. vis-a-vis this particular gender disparity. Yeah. So yeah, so there's probably a lot of reasons, but it tends to be much more common in men. It also get is more common as we get older. And the other thing that's interesting about this condition is that it is linked to other uh, neuro- neurodegenerative pathologies, namely uh, Parkinson's disease. And a specific form of dementia that's linked to Parkinson's is called Lewy body dementia. And that's because they are all sort of pathologically linked. And so a lot of the people who have this condition will develop uh, Parkinson's disease later in life. Now, not everyone. The conversion rate is about six. So if you take all the people who have this, like 6% per year will develop a Parkinson-like symptoms. Okay. Even if it's not Frank Parkinson's, they'll have symptoms that are like Parkinson's disease. Um, and it does, you know, happen more and more with years. It can take years. It can take decades uh, before they have uh, this problem. And what's interesting is that treating the Parkinson's disease doesn't necessarily make the sleep symptoms any better. Hmm. So uh, do you know what the uh, treatment for this uh, would actually be? The treatment for the sleep disorder itself? For the sleep disorders, yeah. Because the treatment for Parkinson's disease is the treatment for Parkinson's disease. It doesn't really right. help the, the sleeping disorders, but it's sort of, they're too related, but you have to treat them uh, differently. Well, I, I, the first thing that pops into my head is a muscle relaxant. Um, otherwise, it would have to be something that would essentially block um, the, uh, the, 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 the molecules that are going down the, neur- the neurons and, and activating the muscles. So they have tried stuff like that. It's usually not the first-line therapy, but uh, people have tried straps, things like... Cool- straps. <laughs> you just strap yourself down to the bed. So you're, you're, well, you're not that wrong. The, the first thing, honestly, is uh-huh. to create a, a safe sleep environment. Safe space. <laughs> yeah, safe space. <laughs> okay. Um, and, some, and you know what? And sometimes that involves people sleeping separately. I mean, that mm-hmm. does actually happen, but... I was reading up on this and one of the great lines, they were like, you know, make sure to avoid anything dangerous around the bed, like lamps that could easily break or firearms. And I was like, oh, Jesus. (laughs) Right. Take firearms away from the bedroom. I'm like, that is good advice. (laughs) Yeah, for anybody with or without REM sleep behavior disorder. Yeah, well, and I guess it's be, and I hadn't thought about it. Like, oh, imagine if you're having a dream where all of a sudden you grab the handgun that's next to your bed and you start shooting. Gee, like, um, I must yeah. for them to say that in official guidance documents. Means yeah, that that's it probably happen, happened somewhere. Yeah. No, I was gonna say like the what, the other thing that they've recommended and what some people try is they actually sleep in a sleeping bag. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So you can't like flail around, but it's like like yeah, it's just make sure that if you were to flail around, you don't like hit something, or you put like guardrails on your bed or something. And there are certain medications that work. Melatonin has actually been tried and has some has some success. And sometimes just uh, sleeping pills also helps a little bit too. Hmm. Uh, so just like regular sleeping pills, like benzodiazepines, can be helpful, but obviously with the side effects of those, they're a little bit little bit iffy but yeah there's a there's a few different things uh that you, you could, say you uh, say you sleeping pill you say sleeping pill and you mentioned benzodiazepines my thought went to uh like first generation antihistamines like uh, diphenhydramine hydrochloride well Does i haven't seen those i haven't seen those studied they weren't uh, okay. referenced potentially they could the important thing to to note i think is that it's not really a sleep problem it's a neurological problem mm-hmm and uh, oh, the one class of medications that I think could potentially be problematic is antidepressants. There are groups of people in whom antidepressants can actually make uh, the issue worse. And so a medication review to see if there's any causative agents could also be helpful. 
But uh, they have also tried things like cholinesterase inhibitors. Those are also sometimes used and, and might be a little bit helpful. Uh, our listener tells us that, that he has purchased an, an Aura ring, O-U-R-A, mm. uh, which is not cheap. Uh, it's about $300 US, roughly 360 Canadian. Uh, it's a ring that's also a tracker. It relays information to an app on your phone, like how you slept. Our podcast is definitely not endorsing this ring, and we are not sponsored by it, unlike other people. And in fact, I wrote a piece that was critical of this ring uh, for the McGill Office for Science and Society at the beginning of the pandemic, when the company was claiming that its ring could tell you if you had COVID before you showed symptoms, and it was being considered by the NBA. Anyway, but, but what do you make of the idea of using that ring or a similar wearable tracker or your phone even to monitor your sleep and get feedback on it? I mean, I genuinely don't understand how that would even help because your problem is not a sleep problem. Your problem is that you have a neurological disorder linked to Parkinson's disease, which causes you to have abnormal behavior, abnormal mm-hmm. movement behavior in your while you're sleeping. So I, I don't know what purpose this would serve. I mean, people know they're doing it. It's usually observed. So I, I don't know what feedback it would possibly give you. What you really need is for somebody to wake you up when this happens so that the dream stops. I mean, again, much like the movie A Nightmare on Elm Street, which you know has been <laughs> coming up on our seen. podcast repeatedly in the past <laughs> little while. And yet, and yet, which you haven't seen, it's it's a good one. I, I think the third one is 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 even yeah. better. But uh, I mean, it was it was it was groundbreaking in the sense that it was using uh, you know latex to create these really interesting dream-like properties in the real world, very kind of groundbreaking special effects. Anyway, we're not a horror movie podcast. No. So when we come back... One day uh, we will be. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's just a question of time. Mm. Um, when we come back, it's a grab bag of health and medical news involving omega-3 supplements, coffee, and yes, the COVID vaccines. This time is the RNA vaccines that are in the spotlight. That's after the break. Do you like medicine that tastes funny and science made easy? Jonathan and I are so much more than disembodied voices on the internet. Join our Facebook community, follow us on Instagram, and check out our website at bodyofevidence.ca to find all of our episodes as well as our science cartoons. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Labos, and Jonathan is at Cracked Science. Let's fight back against misinformation. Welcome to the final stretch of The Body of Evidence after a 20-minute break during which we discuss horror movies and Stephen King. So, uh, Which we very... should probably... Uh, listen, if you become an extra super-duper patron, like, you know, yes. $1,000 a month level, we'll let you hear the conversations we have between segments. Indeed. Uh, Gerald's game, anyone? Mm. So um, very quickly, you told me... Uh, so so we, have a, we have a number of things to cover. We're going to do them very quickly. Mm. Uh, you told me that omega-3 supplements, which I think we've been very clear on, don't really work, uh, that they were recently discussed at the American College of Cardiology's annual meeting. Uh, mm. What happened there? So um, there's been some movement on this topic. So I think it's pretty clear that omega-3 supplements that you buy at a store... Uh, don't work. But there has been interest recently in high-dose prescription-grade omega-3 supplements. And so Mm. there are two basic products on the market, one which is just pure EPA. Remember, we talked about how omega-3s can be, there are different types, and so there's EPA and DHA. So there's one type that is 
pure EPA and a second type, which is an EPA DHA mix. And so the one trial done for the just EPA was positive, And the other trial, which was done on the EPA DHA mix was negative. But and positive so the, the, for what? For uh, cardiovascular endpoints. They basically gave Meaning it to what? people with high cholesterol, treated them for, who had coronary disease and found a reduced risk of uh, composite cardiovascular endpoints. So like death, MI, hospitalization. Okay. So the question that's going on now, and this is still an ongoing field of research is, is this just the play of chance? And the people behind the negative trial say, look, we have two major trials on these things. One's positive, one's negative. This to us suggests that this is all just statistical noise and that mm -hmm. high dose omega-3 supplements don't actually work because we have inconsistent evidence. Whereas the people behind the positive trial say, no, the difference between our two groups was that we had a purified version of omega-3s with just EPA in them. So there is a group of people now who are suggesting that omega-3 supplements as a whole don't work. But if you give high dose of just EPA, that might be beneficial. And they hypothesize that the reason why previous trials have come back negative is that when you have a mix of EPA and DHA together, that creates a null effect. Mm -hmm. I look forward to the tribal uh, fighting. In, well, it may ultimately descend into that because you have very big names on both fights. And much like the salt controversy, if you remember, we talked mm -hmm. about that in a previous episode. Yes, the salt there, wars. Yeah, there may be a, uh, there may be a massive a, uh, a conference that has to be held to resolve this issue. Uh, but, but we'll see. So there's, there, you, will, you, as a listener, will soon be seeing a lot of commercials and probably hearing a lot of talk about why high-dose omega-3s are beneficial Bear in mind, not all the evidence is supportive, and we're talking about like high-dose prescription-level stuff, which we shall see. We shall see. I have some skepticism. My main problem is if you're going to say that it's really just the EPA that's positive, number one, why did all the epidemiological studies about eating fish come back positive then? Because fish have both EPA and DHA in it. And second of all, for this to be true, DHA would have to be harmful to the same degree that EPA is helpful for all the studies to come out as a null effect, right? So that mm -hmm. doesn't quite make sense to me. All right. There's a new study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association about how much coffee you consume and colorectal cancer. Yeah. And do you, uh, you, you found this one during your reading. I think it's, it's interesting because, you know, coffee and cancer link is something that we talk about repeatedly. Uh, almost with no clear resolution. But the, the problem with all these studies are, are twofold. Um, one is, how do you assess how much coffee people drink? And the answer, of course, is... You ask them to fill out questionnaires. Yeah, food questionnaires, which are notoriously unreliable. So we seem to keep mm -hmm. going back to the same well over and over again and having the same conversation. You're like, yeah, okay, but how accurate are all these questionnaires? Now, coffee consumption might be more accurate than more most other foods because people's coffee consumption tends to be fairly regular right mm -hmm, yeah. uh people who drink no coffee will tell you i drink no coffee people who drink one to two cups a day will tell you they drink one to two cups a day and it tends not to deviate as much as other food like eggs or broccoli or berries uh, but still there's you know often a fair degree of uncertainty here and so i don't tend to put too much stock in stuff like this And the second point. 
the second point. I have to come. I have to remember what the second point was when I start my. <laughs> but what, well, what, 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 what oh, is yeah. the claim? What is the claim that the study was making about the consumption of coffee and colorectal cancer? The more you drink coffee, the higher chance of getting colorectal cancer. Uh, I thought it was the more protective, but now you've made me doubt myself. Hold on a second. <laughs> oh no! Hold on. I have the study right here. Uh, no, beneficial. Yeah, beneficial. Okay. Yeah, so the coffee was uh, protective. Yeah, okay. okay. Phew, I got I got okay. scared there for a second. I thought I was misremembering everything. Keeping you on your toes. Yeah, no, exactly. I had that moment of like self doubt. No, and this is and, and this is not inconsistent with what other epidemiological observational research has found, showing that coffee consumption can be protective for this cancer or that cancer. That coffee can increase mortality. It becomes problematic to draw causal relationships because people self-regulate there's a lot of confounding that goes into how much coffee you drink like people who have pre-existing gastrointestinal disorders drink less coffee and so that may put them at a higher risk of developing cancers i, I mean a clear mm -hmm. an obvious link is that people with um uh, inflammatory bowel disease uh probably drink less coffee because it can be irritating and and throw off their uh, bowel habits and people with a chronically high inflammatory state are at increased risk for cancer, especially that's especially true with ulcerative colitis. So, you know, I never know what to make of these studies. I think they're, you know, interesting for what they are. There are hundreds of them and they never end. But I think it's very hard to draw <laughs> causal relationships because there's just so many ways in which the results can be skewed. All that to say, if you drink coffee, I don't think there's any reason to to especially worry all that much. And finally, Pfizer's and Moderna's RNA-based COVID-19 vaccines, which are safe and effective, might, might be linked to myocarditis or pericarditis in adolescents and young adults. So first off, what are these conditions? Uh, so myocarditis is an inflammation of the heart muscle. Pericarditis is an inflammation of the tissue surrounding the heart. Uh, they are often caused by the same thing. They can be very painful, uh, especially pericarditis, and it's a state of it, it's it's an inflammatory state. It's inflammation. So if it's just pericarditis, the tissue is inflamed, but with um, anti-inflammatories, the inflammation eventually goes down and the pain goes away. Myocarditis can be more dangerous because when the heart muscle itself is affected, the heart muscle can be weakened and uh, this can uh, cause a temporary state of heart failure. The good news is that it usually recovers, but uh, these things are usually caused by viruses. They can be caused by other things, but usually by viruses. And so if a virus affects your heart muscle, it can temporarily cause heart failure in a young person. And while mm. it usually does recover, there are some cases where it does not. So it can potentially be very dangerous, although thankfully it's usually okay. How robust is this link between myocarditis, pericarditis, and those RNA-based COVID-19 vaccines? Or is this just an early potential safety signal that might be nothing and just needs to be investigated? Uh, uh, most likely the second of those things. What has been seen so far is that you have seen reports of young people developing uh, myocarditis. Usually younger people, because those are the groups that are being vaccinated now in the U.S., and this is all like mm -hmm. U.S. data that's coming out. So mostly younger people, mostly boys, and mostly after the second shot, which is unclear why that would be the case. So it is a fairly limited thing, and it's still somewhat unclear because these cases 
might have happened regardless of vaccination, right? People do get myocarditis for other reasons. So you, number one, have to prove that these cases are linked to the vaccine and that they are occurring more frequently than you would otherwise expect in the general population. And that is still unproven for the most part. If more data comes in and you have more data showing an association between those two things, I think the link will be strengthened. But for now, it is somewhat speculative. If you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, people were suggesting that there was a link between getting COVID infections and myocarditis. And that ultimately did not pan out. Subsequent studies show that if COVID does affect the heart, it's pretty rare and it doesn't affect the heart more frequently than any other virus might. So we want to thank our newest patrons, and they are Sky Sorensen, Leon Lauder, Fidix Gamash, William Lee, Marianne Levac, Warren, Irina Bolobanova, and Unthor Jonsson, who, uh, with a name like this, deserves their own Marvel superhero movie, I think. Indeed. And, and a kind tip of the hat to David McConnell and DJA for upping their pledges. Um, as always, we want to thank our patrons at the $5 or more level, and they are Alan, Bill, Cabe, Chris, DJA, Don, Eric, Frank, Jeff, Helen, Ilya, Islan, Janikala, Jeff, Juan, Caitlin, Carrie, Ken, Laura, Leanne, Leon, Louise, Luna, Marianne, Mark, Mary, Mavis, Michael, Mike, Ms. Bean, Nolan, Olga, Pascal, Pat, Paul, Paul, Rena, Ronald, Rye, Sky, Stevie, Suzanne, Tal, That Montreal Guy, and Trimian. If you want to help support our show, uh, you, you can go to patreon.com slash the body of evidence. All of our patrons, no matter how small their contributions, tiny, tiny, small contributions, they get an exclusive bonus segment each month and rarely twice a month as happened uh, this month. Uh, and the segment is called Digressions. And this month's digressions, we just decided, will be on uh, expiry dates. In general, in general, yeah, no. Well, on, we're going to talk. We're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the changing expiry date for uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine, and talk about how medications and medical products get their uh, expiry dates. And that's the end of our show this month. Our jingle was composed and performed by Jillian Correa of the Virtual Music School, Rocktavio, Canada. Check the show notes for full music credits. Our theme music is "Fall of the Ocean Queen" by Joseph Hackle. Our illustrator is Luke Ouellette. If you want to support the show, find us on Patreon. All of our patrons get a bonus segment each month called Digressions. We're on Facebook and Instagram, and you can find Chris and me on Twitter as well. Our website is bodyofevidence.ca. The Body of Evidence is not affiliated with the McGill Office for Science and Society and is a production of 1254-0851 Canada, Inc. And when trying to decide if a study is good or not, remember the Body of Evidence creed. A study in mice is not a study in people. Coincidences are easy. Proving causation is hard. Scientific studies are like movies. Some are just bad. We can't stop at a single study. We have to look at the The body body of of evidence. Detoxes use less. Ooh. 
what's best is to drink less. Ooh, alcohol.